Um, so I'm excited to go through this with you, and so let's uh, open our time with prayer and ask God to bless our study. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of the Revelation, the promise it gives to us, the blessing that it offers your people, um, and the, the, the good news that it presents to us of Christ, triumphant, ruling over all, and coming again soon in glory. So we pray that you would help us to understand it by your spirit, that we might honor you in our study of it, and understand better what you've prepared for us in your word. So help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to be reading from the book of the Revelation. So if you want to take out your Bibles um, and keep them open so we can continue to refer to uh, chapter 1. We're going to go through chapter 1 together. Um, And our goal for this evening is to kind of look at chapter 1 a little bit to understand something of the structure that we see in Revelation, the message that's promised in it, um, and try to get to Uh, a kind of general overview of what we're hoping to do with this study in terms of the structure, in terms of how we want to understand the book, um, and then uh, as we go through it in upcoming weeks, use that as kind of the way of navigating our way through the book. So we're going to say some general things about the book of the Revelation tonight, and then unfold the letter, begin to unfold the letters to the seven churches next time. Uh, So that's kind of our our task. So if you turn with me to the book of the Revelation, it's easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. Um, And I'm going to read just the first three verses before we go on. So this is God's own word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Um, we'll, we'll, keep up, we'll take up a little bit more of chapter 1 later, but that's what I want to read just to orient us to this study. Um, one of the things I, I kidded when, that I have secret knowledge, but I actually do have secret knowledge because I have my dad's book on Revelation that has not yet been published. Um, so that's the extent of my secret knowledge. I just have access to his book. And so um, I want to kind of lead us through that book. I think it's a very accessible way to understand the book of the Revelation. And I've been told that hopefully it'll be out sometime next year early. So Maybe at some point in this study, we'll actually be able to get the book, uh, all of us, and go through it together. So if when the book comes out, you look at the book and say, you, you stole this from your father's book, um, I'm telling you up front, I'm going to steal it from his book. And if you say you're stealing, it makes it okay. Um, so we want to look through it. But in, in the introduction to his book, he says this, the book of the Revelation has fascinated Christians over many centuries. It has inspired thorough study good spiritual counsel, and an immense amount of silliness. Too often Christians have come to the Revelation with a whole list of questions they immediately want answered. What or who is 666? Who is the beast? What is the thousand years described in Revelation 20? These questions and many more are important and fascinating, but in order to answer them correctly, we must understand the basic character and meaning of the book as a whole. Um, To answer any one specific question, we need to understand the whole. And that's what we really want to do. Um, If you notice, it's called the book of the Revelation. 
Um, we sometimes, you know, shorthand, we'll call it revelations. Um, but there's actually no S. It's not revelations, it's the revelation. Um, it's, it's one unified message. It has one point to bring to God's people. And that's what we want to understand together. What is the message of this book as a whole? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, given to John that he might bear witness to him and teach him things. And so what we want to understand is, is there a structure that we can put together in our minds to understand how this book holds together? Um, is there a way we can look at this book and see how, how it was organized by our Lord in giving it to John, which will help us to understand the message? And I do think there is a good structure that we can figure out. And so what we want to do as we go through it is think a little bit about the purpose that God gave this book for, uh, the structure in which he gave it, and the meaning that we're meant to take from it. Um, it would be strange to call a book a revelation and then make it so hard to understand that you didn't know what was being revealed. Um, you know, otherwise, it would be the book of the obfuscation. Um, we wouldn't be able to understand anything that's in it. We wouldn't be able to put two and two together. Um, and, you know, there are parts of it that we might feel like that. There are parts of the book at times we might say, I'm not sure what's going on here. Um, I'm not sure what's going on here. And our goal is to try to get the basics down so that even if we're, we find ourselves momentarily lost in the trees, we can go back to the forest and say, generally I know what's going on here and that will help keep me oriented to where I am in this particular section. Uh, so we don't get so lost um, in the whole thing when we read through it on our own. We want it to be understandable. Um, it's meant to be understood. Um, and, and that should be a, good, a great comfort to us as we go through it, that it's, it's actually meant to be understood. It's not meant to be so confusing that you can't make anything out of it um, because it's meant for us to be a blessing. Um, but we need to understand what is being revealed and by whom it's being revealed. Um, that, that's you know, sort of the first thing we're going to have to do to understand this. Um, but the book helps us in that it clearly spells out what the purpose of this is. And we read that in, in the first three verses. Um, what is, what is the point? This is John's witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all that he saw. Um, and it's the revelation of Christ to show us something very specific. Um, and what is that meant to show us? What will soon take place? Right, The time is near. So there are things that must soon take place, we're told in verse 1. That's the purpose of this book, to tell us the things that are going to soon take place. It's very specific in that way. Um, the angel was to bring witness from Jesus Christ uh, to John so that he might bear witness to everything that he saw, which has the purpose of telling us what's soon going to take place because the time is near. Um, and so there's a certain urgency to this book as well that we see in that, right? If the time is near, the message is pressing. Um, and so it's all the more important that it be able to be understood, right? If, it's, if the, the time was far away, then maybe we could have some time to not, be, not understand and have to work through it. But if it's meant to be understood because the time is near, that things in it must soon take place, then it means to be understood and it means to be understood now. 
Um, and I think looking carefully at the structure can help us to understand um, what's going on. So that's going to be our basic goal tonight, is to try to think a little bit about the structure of this book and its meaning and purpose. Um, the structure is going to be really helpful to us to, to, con- to consider its meaning and its purpose as we go out. And so one of the things we're not going to be able to do in our study is, is interact with every single view that's ever been held about Revelation. I mean, we're just not going to be able to go through it all. We can't go, you know, column by column comparing dispensationalism to what we're going to try to do. That's just going to be too unwieldy. Um, so we're going, to, we're, going to just, we're going to start with some basic convictions about the book. Um, so basic starting points that we need to understand from, from where we're going. So we're going to talk about the structure, but we have three basic convictions that we're going to keep in mind as we begin to think about the book of the Revelation. The first conviction we have is that it was written by the Apostle John. Um, now that might not seem like a, a conviction, um, but there are a lot, there's a lot of people who debate whether that's the Apostle John who wrote it. We're just going to assume that he wrote it. I think there's good reason to think that he wrote it. Um, and that's what we're going to go through. That's what most conservative, reliable reform scholars believe. John wrote it, and they believe that he wrote it in the late first century AD after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So think probably John in the mid-90s. So the Apostle John in the mid to late 90s AD. I think like my ESV has like 95, 96. Um, So the mid to late 90s. So that's, anyone know when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed? Okay, everybody knows, all right. 70 AD. Um, So this is going to be well after that event, right? Um, Well after 70 AD. So that's, we're just going to assume that. Um, If you want, you know, a full accounting of that, you can go to a, a big commentary um, probably the, the biggest kind of reform commentary on it is G.K. Beale's commentary on the book of the Revelation. So if you have tons of questions and you want all the information, that's the place to go. It's about that thick. Um, it, it's a good resource. Uh, Dennis Johnson has, has a smaller book that's very accessible, very pastoral, um, called The Triumph of the Lamb on the book of the Revelation. That'll be good if you're interested in interacting with any of these questions. I'm not really interested in interacting with those questions. I think John wrote it in the mid-90s, and I don't really want to talk about it. Um, no, I, it's just I think we don't have time to, you know, always dispute every single point. We're going to have to leave some things unargued, right? So I think John wrote it in the mid to late 90s. Um, that's the first conviction we're going to start with. Um, The second conviction is that Revelation is about the meaning of the history of the church rather than a detailed prophecy of specific events throughout the history of the church. So it's explaining to us the meaning of the history of the church. What that means is is that it's as useful for the church in the time it was written as it is for the church now. It's saying things about the basic meaning of the history of the church. It's not meant to detail necessarily specific events and when they're going to occur. We'll talk about some other other views that do that. Um, But our conviction is that the meaning of church history is the point of the book, rather than a detailed 
uh, prophecy of specific events throughout the history of the church. Um, and we can, we can come to that. Um, my dad wrote, Our approach sometimes is called the idealist or spiritual approach, and it believes that Revelation helps Christians understand the meaning of the historical events that surround them, no matter the century in which they live, offering encouragement to them in the present suffering and filling them with the hope of coming glory. That this book is meant to help Christians whenever they're living understand what, what is church history about? Why are we suffering? And what is our hope of glory? And therefore, it functions wherever you're living. Um, whether you're living right as John's writing it or when we're, whether we're living now. Um, it still has something to say to tell us about the meaning of the Christian life. Um, what this approach helps us do is it keeps us from, from trying to constantly figure out where we are in the book. Um, because some people, some people take that approach, right? We're always trying to figure out where are we in the book, um, that, that it lays out in a certain way, and, and where are we? Um, but this kind of approach helps us say, we're, not, we're exactly where they were in terms of the church in the world. We're the church between the comings of Christ. He's come and he's given himself on the cross for his sins. He's been triumphant over sin. He's ascended on high. He's reigning at the Father's right hand. He's coming again in glory. And one day he will come again in glory and make all things new. We're, we're between his redemptive work and the consummation. And we are where the church has always been since he came. Right? This is the church history that we all live in. This time between the times, we could say between his death and resurrection and between his coming again in glory. That all of the church lives in this time. Um, and so not to figure out, try to figure out where we are in the book. That wherever we are in the book, we're sharing the same difficulties that the church has always shared. And we're living in light of the same hope in which the church has always lived. Um, and that should be an encouragement to God's people. Um, obviously, not everyone agrees with that approach to the book of the Revelation. Um, there are preterists who believe that uh, the book is largely a history of what happened. They believe it was written before the fall of the temple in 70 AD. And so this is mostly talking about what will happen when Jerusalem is destroyed. And so it's something that was predictive of what would happen, and then it happened. So it's all in the past. Um, if you're wondering why we call it preterism, it just kind of comes from a Latin word meaning sort of last or beyond. That we're sort of beyond the events that were happening here. Um, and people can be partial preterists. They can believe that part of it is past and part of it is still yet to come. So as you know, you can make it as complicated as you like. Uh, that's one of the joys of Revelation. You want to make it complicated? You can make it complicated. Um, so that's, that's one view, preterism. There are futurists that believe that everything after chapter 3 has yet to take place, so that we're somehow still kind of, you know, chapter 2-ish, and we're waiting for everything in the book to happen. Um, that's a kind of futurist approach. Dispensationalists often fall into this camp, that a lot of it is future, and so you're always wondering, when, where are we? Um, and there are sort of people who are called church historicals, who think Revelation unfolds the history of the church, and so at any moment in the history of the church, you should be able to tell where we are. Um, and so there, you know, there are people who, who argue about that too. We're in chapter 12, um, or we're in chapter 7, 
And they mark time that way. And of course, we're all trying to get to the end of this book. And so if you live like that, then you always want to know, where are we? Are we early on in the book? Are we late in the book? I'd rather be late in the book, but we don't know where we are. And then you argue about that. But um, we're trying to avoid all that by saying we're in every part of the book all the time. Uh, The church is in all parts of this book. Um, It's always true for the church. That's the meaning. That's the conviction we have, uh, the second conviction we have in coming to this book. Um, The third we have is that Revelation was written with extraordinary complexity and attention to detail. So it was written with complexity. And attention to detail. It's another way of saying that the details are intentional. Um, That this is a carefully constructed narrative and it's meant to bring a lot of things to bear from the Bible. Um, And so we're going to want to pay attention to the details that we're given. Um, And what we'll do in, in, in looking at this is say, God has beautifully put this together. This testimony that God gave to his son, that his son gave to the angel to reveal to John and that John has written as he saw it, is a beautiful testimony to the meaning of church history, to what God is doing. It's it's a beautiful way of sharing with God's people what this present age is going to be like until the Lord comes again. It's honest about the sufferings. Um, It's encouraging about the glory. Um, And it's meant to do that for God's people all the way along. Um, it's, It's beautifully put together, beautifully constructed to teach the purpose Um, And so those are some of the commitments as we come to think about the structure. We're going to talk about it as if John wrote it at this time. It's talking about the meaning of the whole church, and it was written with complexity. It's a complex book, and attention to detail, but that's also that God can manifest his glory in the beauty of the message that's given. Um, We shouldn't be surprised that something that God has put together has beautiful complexity and detail to communicate a beautiful message. Um, and so that, that's what's going on. And so the structure of the book um, that we're going to sort of argue for and that we, that we can see, I think, clearly coming out of the text, um, that we're not trying to impose it on the text, that we're trying to see it come out of the text, it's always our goal, um, is to see the book in cycles. Um, one of, the, one of the real insights I think that you have to have in coming, or that people have had in coming to the book of the Revelation is to say, it's not a linear unfolding of events. Um, it would be wrong to see this as the, the unfolding of church history, so that it's on a line like this, right, with chapter 1 being here and chapter 22 being here. Um, and, that, and that, you know, it marks time as it goes on. Um, it's not that, okay, so that's why I'm going to erase it. It's not that. If it's in your notes, note that. It's not that. Um, you can be very confused if you don't get that. Okay, so it, it doesn't mark like that. What it's more like is like a play in a football game. Um, so imagine you're watching a football game. What happens in a football game? They, they have the camera and they're showing the action and the play unfolds, right, and you watch it happen. Um, And then after it happens, there's downtime because they've got 45 seconds to run another play. 
Um, so the play clock starts counting and they don't have anything better to do, so they show you the play again. Oftentimes they'll show you the play from a different angle, right? Sometimes you looked at it from one sideline and when they show you the replay, they'll flip it around and show you the other sideline. Um, so you can have that image reversed. Sometimes they have, you know, the camera on the wire over the play and you'll look down on it and the, and the camera will run with the play forward. And so one, one angle you got on the side, one angle you got from the other side, one angle you got from the top down. Um, the announcer might say, now look at this player. He played really well on this play. We're going to watch him work. So say, you know, sorry, but say they pull a guard on the run, right? And so they're going to say, look at the left guard and watch him move. And they highlight one player and you watch him move around. The camera follows him, Right? Um, and then you get the angle from the end zone and see it on the field level, right? There's all different ways of looking at it. But what you know is it's all the same play. You're, you're watching the same thing happen again and again. You're just watching it from different angles. Um, and that's what Revelation is going to do. Revelation is going to show us the same thing from a number of different angles, it's going to show us how the church suffers in this world from a number of different angles. Sometimes it's going to be wide. Sometimes it's going to be narrow. Sometimes we're going to look from the top down. Sometimes we're going to look from the end. But we're, we're seeing all the same thing. How the church suffers and also how God is still ruling and how Christ triumphs. Um, it, it is a story of suffering at times, but it's also a story of victory. Um, that's why I like that Dennis Johnson's book is called The Triumph of the Lamb. That's what Revelation is about. Um, Jesus wins in the end. That's, that's the important part of the book of the Revelation. And so one of the advantages of understanding this is to say it's not unfolding in a linear fashion along a line. It's the same thing seen again and again. It's looking at different facets of a diamond, whatever is helpful to do that. Now, that's not always clear. I remember when my, when my grandmother was living with our family, sometimes she, didn't, she wouldn't spot when it had been a replay. And she would say, oh, they scored again. She'd say, I wish we'd scored again, but that's just the same play, Grandma. Um, you know, it, it can look sometimes different because you're seeing a different angle. Um, but actually, it's the same thing again and again. And that's what we're looking at. We're going to see cycles of the same thing told in different ways. Um, but told in helpful ways for us to see what God is clearly communicating. Different cycles will emphasize different things, the way different camera angles will emphasize different things. Um, but what it will all do is show the whole story together from every different angle of what God is doing throughout church history um, through the sufferings of his people for the glory of his Son. Um, and so we're going to look at cycles, and as we look at the book, how many cycles do you think we'd have? Seven, okay. That was pretty quick. Why seven? Number of completeness, somebody said, yeah. Is seven important in the book of the Revelation? Yeah, it is. Um, you guys are smart. 
Um, it's seven. So we're going to look and say seven cycles. And what we're going to notice is every cycle has seven sections. Some of them will have an introduction to them. But they'll have seven cycles in the book. The story is told in seven cycles. And every cycle has seven sections. Um, and, and you'll see that this is not, you know, sort of imposed on the text. It just flows naturally from what comes. I mean, if you, if you know the book of the Revelation at all, what's, what's the first group of seven that we have in the book? Write the letters to the churches. So, and how many churches are there? Seven, right? So we're not imposing um, on that, right? That, that just falls out, um, this kind of cycle. And so what we're going to see is every cycle has a different focus, but they're all telling the same story. That's what we're going to, you know, like, again, watching that football play, like one, play, one angle might focus on the defensive backs, the guys in the backfield who are playing further back and it might focus on those four guys as they run. Some might stay in the line with the big guys where they're all in front. Sorry if you don't know football. I should find another way of relating this as well. But um, different parts and sections of the field, players doing different things, and that's, that's what these cycles are going to do. And so we want to think about it in that way um, because we'll see that seven is very important in the book. Um, in, in chapter one, you can't get away from, from seven. There are seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven angels. Right? It, it's, it's pretty much exactly what we need as God's people, right? Seven is important. Um, God won't let us miss that by all those uses of seven right there in the first chapter. But beyond the first chapter, seven is also inescapably prominent. Right, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of plagues. Um, and so what we're going to do is see that chapter one serves as an important organizational model for everything else that follows. It helps clue us in to this structure that unfolds in the book of the Revelation. And so we want to we understand that. We want to see how this is working. And hopefully try to see that this just comes right out of the text. Um, that we don't need to give a complicated chart to follow it because it'll just break right out of the text um, in that way. Um, and so the first cycle really goes from Revelation 1 verse 4 um, to about Revelation 3.22. Um, that, that's sort of the end of the first cycle in the book of the Revelation that sets us off on this pattern and helps us see these things. Um, and so we could say that the theme of this first cycle is that the church in its suffering must remain faithful. So that's really 1 verse 4 through 3. 20, what did I say? 22. Now what I like about that is, is that mystical or difficult to understand? It might be difficult to read on account of my handwriting, but it's not difficult to understand, is it? 
the church and its suffering must remain faithful. Um, that's the overarching message of this structure. Um, and so I think there are things that we can see clearly in the book. It doesn't mean everything's going to be easy as we go along. Um, it doesn't mean everything's going to be immediately apparent. Um, it doesn't mean that I'll necessarily have an easy time going through it or that I'll be able to answer every single question you have. Um, without saying, I'm going to go need to study that and think about it, and then go crack open the big volume of Beale and turn those pages and see what I can find there. Um, but we will be able to see, I think, the basics. Because God means this book to be a blessing to his people. Um, we, can't lose, we can't lose a hold of that promise that's there, that beautiful promise that's there in Revelation 1 verse 3. Um, that promises blessing to the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. Right? This book is meant to be a blessing. That's an encouragement. Right? And I didn't read it aloud just so that I would get a blessing. Right? It's, the purpose of this book is read it aloud. It'll be a blessing to the one who reads it. It'll be a blessing to the one who hears it. Um, it's supposed to be a blessing. It's not supposed to be a mystery. That's an encouraging thing for us to do. It's also calling us to react. Um, you know, I think sometimes we can, we can fall in the trap of thinking Revelation is just here to be worked on like a puzzle. It has a lot of really interesting, intriguing questions that we can pour over and we can see some interesting things and you can see locusts with faces and crowns and weird stuff and what's going on there. And we can get so into all the details and into the message and everything we forget that not only is it promised to be a blessing, it also calls us to do something. You notice that in verse 3? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, who keep what is written in it. So it, it's not just an interesting set of facts, it's calling God's people to respond, to keep the things that are written in it. Right? So it's not just an interesting observation to say, oh, cycle one is about the church and its suffering must remain faithful. That's the calling to God's people. These are the things in that cycle that are, we're going to be called to keep. Uh, the kinds of things that Christ points out through John in this letter. So it, it has an importance in that sense. It promises a blessing. It calls for a response. Um, and it makes a factual claim. Um, at the end of verse 3. The time is near. Right? Why should we keep what's written in it? Because the time is near. Why does the church need to remain faithful? The time is near. That's an incredibly encouraging thing. Especially for a church in suffering. That the time is near. Um, and what time are we talking about? Well, the time of Christ's return. The time that he sets everything right. It's not a far-off future. This is not a book that deals with distant things that are just not related to life here and now. No, it's bringing it very close to home and saying the time is near for all of these things. Um, it's of utmost importance to God's people. So it's not, a it's not just a novelty. It's not a curiosity. It's an urgent call. These are urgent words that promise a blessing to those who hear um, and receive what's written in it. Um, and th so those are some of the introductory things 
um, that I wanted to say about this before we dive in. Now, this necessarily is kind of stale when you do this sort of introductory stuff. So hopefully as we go in and, and get down into the text some more, it'll, be, it'll continue to be interesting to us and continue to, to enliven our hearts and, and open those to the things of the Lord. But um, any questions about that sort of introductory, introductory stuff? Okay. No questions always means you're either so clear you just knocked it out of the park and everybody's right on board, or you so confused everyone that they don't even know where to start. Like, I'm so lost, I don't even know. So I'm going to assume the former rather than the latter, because that makes me feel better. It's better for my ego. Um, Okay, so we have this important introduction, right, that this book is from God to his people through John about the Lord Jesus Christ, from him. It's a blessing to hear it. It's a blessing to read it. It's telling us to do something, contains an urgent call, the time is near, and so the first cycle begins with an important introduction. The church and its suffering must remain faithful. Um, And the book opens with an introduction before the letters start to remind us of some very important things. Um, And that introduction is going to focus us on two principal things. First, on the earthly ministry of the Apostle John. Okay, Um, I'm going to erase this part. I don't need charts, but I do need whiteboard space. So um, the first part of the introduction is about John's earthly ministry. Okay, and then in the middle of the introduction, it takes a turn. And it takes a glorious turn to reflect on Jesus' heavenly ministry. And these are both going to have a bearing on what is happening in the first cycle. This message that's going to come to these seven churches, that the church and its suffering must remain faithful. So in a lot of ways... As much as we know that this book is filled with complexities and puzzling statements, it begins very much like other books. Look at, look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Right, that's fairly standard right, in letters for someone to write, identify themselves as the writer, offer a word of greeting, right, grace and peace. Um, this is a glorious Trinitarian blessing that we have here, but it's, it's not so bizarre. right? John, the author, to the recipients, the seven churches that are in Asia, this word of blessing on them in verses 5 and 6. Um, this, this doxology of, of glory to God, right? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right, there's this wonderful blessing and doxology and then a brief instruction. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Um, that, that directs our attention immediately to who God is, what he's done, the blessing that comes to his churches. That's all fairly standard. Um, and then there's a more detailed account that John gets into of how he received this revelation. Um, and that goes from about verses 9 to 20. Uh, where John talks about this revelation that he received from Jesus um, and talks about John's earthly ministry. Right, so we begin with John as an apostle who's a minister to these seven churches. And he's writing a letter to the seven churches, much like the letters that we see in other passages in Scripture. Just like we're going through Paul writing to the Philippians. John is a minister to these churches. He's writing to these churches. And so he's writing to particular churches, the churches in Asia, or we usually say Asia Minor, um, the seven that will be mentioned as we go along. He's just doing his earthly ministry. Um, he writes to them, and they function for them the same way they function for us, right? We are going through the book of Philippians not because we're Philippians, right? You know this, right? You're not a Philippian. Um, if, if you're just now realizing, I'm sorry to break it to you at this late hour, but you're not a Philippian. Um, but the reason we can read those books with profit is we know that the Holy Spirit wasn't just writing them to the Philippians. He was writing them to every generation of God's people. And that's why you'll notice that every single letter that John is given to give to the churches in Asia Minor by the Lord, they always end the same way. Um, how, how do every one of those seven letters end? Does anybody know? Let he who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter ends with a reminder this is not just for those churches, it's for everyone who has an ear to hear. Um, that there's a message for all of us in those messages to the churches. That's why we go through Philippians. That's why we look at these letters. They're not just for them. They're also for us. And they're written to people who were there at the time. Right? We don't need to spiritualize these letters and say, you know, well, where was the letter to Philadelphia? Where was that going? It was going to Philadelphia. It was going to the people who were in Philadelphia, the city in Asia Minor, not the city of brotherly love um, in the East Coast, right? Um, it was written to a particular people in a particular place. Um, and so we always have to think as we look at those letters about just like we did with the Philippians. You have to look at the original audience. You have to see how the things said in that letter relate to the, to the original audience. Right? When Paul says to the Philippians, you have a citizenship from heaven... Your citizenship is in heaven, and from there you wait a Savior. It's important to know that the citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens, a privilege that not many people had, unless they were very important in the empire. That's why constantly nobody thought Paul was a Roman citizen, because he didn't seem important enough to be a Roman citizen. Um, and so when you know that the letter is going to citizens, it makes a difference when Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven. Right? That's particularly aimed at an earthly situation. And we're going to find that with all the letters to the seven churches. It's written to particular people at a particular time. The church in a particular situation 
um, that was true of all of them in the world is that they were a tiny, scattered, persecuted minority. Um, a tiny, scattered, persecuted minority. Um, and what, what is true of a church that's in that kind of situation in the world when you know that Jesus is king? Um, when Jesus is king, but Domitian is emperor, and you're being persecuted, and it's dangerous to be a Christian, and you're forced to, to face challenges, like you can be arrested for being a Christian, and they'll put you in front of an idol of Caesar and say, either you offer a little bit of a pinch of this to this idol and worship the idol, or you can refuse and we'll put you to death. Maybe if we're feeling a good mood, we'll just cut your head off, but we'll probably throw you in a gladiator ring and let you either be torn apart by wild animals or maybe we'll set you in our garden and light you on fire um, to be lamps. And you're faced with that choice. Just do this little thing. You don't, they don't even care if you mean it. Just you doing it is fine. Just renounce Christianity and we'll let you go, but don't and you die. And that's the situation in the church. Um, that, that's the reality these churches are facing. And then they hear what we hear on Sunday, that Christ rules over all. Right? We hear that God's kingdom is an everlasting dominion. Um, that he's in charge, that he's in power. And you hear that, and it's such a different matter from what you see in the world. Right? The Lord reigns, but it seems like everything's a mess. Um, does that sound familiar? <laughs> right. um, you see how this is not just first century stuff? These are, you know, hashtag 21st century problems. Um, th this is still the kind of stuff that we, we wrestle with, that reality. That, that Jesus is with us and he's never going to leave us or forsake us, but it doesn't seem like it um, in the world. It, it seems like the world is a very different place than the one that's spoken about in the scriptures. Um, that, that believers are struggling. And if Christ is on the throne, since Christ is on the throne, why aren't things better for God's people? These are their struggles. These are our struggles. These are the struggles of the church in every age. The Lord reigns, let the earth tremble, but the earth doesn't seem to care. And it seems to run over us with a bulldozer. Um, so how are we to make sense of this? And, and John understands this struggle, right? John is not an ivory tower philosopher speaking to realities that he doesn't get. Look at verse 9. He writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Um, he's not independent of the struggles of the church. Um, he describes himself as a brother and partner in the tribulation. Right? And what is the tribulation? Um, maybe some of you are saying, now this I know. <laughs> I've studied this before. Um, but John is just talking about the suffering that the church is going through. 
I'm, I'm a brother and a partner in it. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I share in the tribulation. I share in the kingdom. And I share in the patient endurance. Right? If that's not a summary of the church in every age, what we need to be, I don't know what is. We're sharing in the tribulation, we're sharing in the kingdom, we're sharing in the patient endurance. John is not isolated from that. And he's on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Um, Sometimes people will say that John was in exile on Patmos. Um, Probably it's more accurate that John is fleeing persecution on Patmos because of his testimony for Christ's word, he's been so persecuted that he's had to flee to this island. John wasn't important enough to be exiled by Romans. That's not how Romans dealt with problems. Romans always killed people. That's how they figured. That's how they sorted through problems. Um, you only got exiled if you're a really important person that they didn't think would be a good idea to just kill you. But the Roman solution to the problem was always just kill people, and everyone else will get the message. Um, and so John is fleeing persecution. That's why he's on the island of Patmos. He's been driven there um, by persecution. He's been driven there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even though he's a partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Right? He's not independent of this suffering. He understands this suffering. He's a participant in it even though he's the disciple that Jesus loved. Right? If, if anyone we might say could have expected a better life um, or experiencing his best life now, we might have thought it would be John, the one who knew Jesus loved him. And yet he's a partner in all of these things. He's a, he's a member of that spiritual struggle we all share of being members of the kingdom in Christ, uh, but also in the midst of the tribulation and in the need to patiently endure. Um, and, and so we're all being brought into this experience right out of the gate to be reminded of where we are in the world by the Apostle John. Um, my dad wrote, in a real sense, what the whole book of the Revelation is about is a call for us to remember that although we are a part of the kingdom right now, For right now, we still need to patiently endure. We experience the kingdom today in the tribulation and endurance of the people of God and not yet in the glory to be revealed at the last day. Um, That that still is the reality in which we live. Um, But our suffering and our need to patiently endure don't mean that those other glorious things aren't true. Right? The blessing that comes to us is true from the triune God. And we need to hear that blessing when the church is in the midst of its suffering. We need to be reminded of what our God says to us. Right? And the glory of the blessing that John gives to the church. Right? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Um, now, Reverend Tedrick and I had a, had a professor that I won't test you on this. You can sit easy. You're on vacation after all. Um, So he used to say, I don't like that translation. Because there's a way to say it in Greek if you want to say he was and he is and he is to come. It's a very clear way to say it. But that's not what is said here. What is said is, he was and is and is coming. 
He's on his way. Right? That's the force of that blessing. That we have a Father in heaven who's always been, who is now, and who's on his way. Right? That's good news. Grace you and peace from the God who's coming. Maybe you remember in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe series when they would say, Aslan's on the move. Right? That was an encouragement to them. Aslan's on the move. That's what this blessing is saying. The Father is on the move. He's on his way. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is coming. That's why I always say it that way. If you ever look in your Bible and say, I don't think the pastor gets it right. Um, I, I'm doing that on purpose to remind you. He was and he is and he is coming. That's the, that's the thing that we're told about the Father. Um, he's in charge of time. Notice how it puts him in reference to time. He was and is and he's on his way. The one who is in charge of time who's managing in time. So we don't need to worry about the course of history. Right? We're going to try to figure out what is the meaning of the history of the church? What is going on in the world? What is God accomplishing? Well, it's good to remember that we have a Father in heaven and He was and He is and He is coming. The world is not out of control. The world is well managed and being moved towards the goal He's appointed for it. Uh, We have that blessing, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is coming and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Right? Now that's a reference to the, to the Holy Spirit. The, the force of that might be you know, the sevenfold spirit. Somebody said it was the number of perfection. Um, that's right, the number of fullness and completeness. When it comes to the spirit, it's, it's highlighting the completeness of his power and knowledge. The seven spirits that are before his throne. It's the power that goes out from the throne of God, goes in the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so he's there, and we're being reminded right out of the gate that the, that the book of the Revelation is going to use symbolism, right? There aren't seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit, but symbolically calling him the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit is a way of saying, of highlighting the fullness and completeness of his power, the fullness and completeness of his wisdom, um, and it's, it's a reminder to us that even people who want to take Revelation totally literally have to take some things figuratively, right? The most diehard literalist coming to Revelation does not believe in seven Holy Spirits. They, they would still believe that that is a figurative way of talking about the one Holy Spirit of God. Um, and so the Father who was and is and is coming, the sevenfold Spirit who's before his throne in power, um, and of course, right, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. There we get a highlight of what Revelation is also going to do, is take Old Testament imagery and bring it in to this Revelation to characterize and to help us understand that this is the fulfillment of everything that's been talked about. Um, Because those descriptions of Jesus Christ are very specific. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. There's a purpose in doing that. Those are references to Psalm 89. The psalm that, that celebrates the great promises that God made to David of a king that would always sit on his throne. So Psalm 89, 27 says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. 
right? So we hear that echo of Old Testament imagery or Psalm 89, 36 and 37. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So here he is, the firstborn, the faithful witness. What gets added on to that? He's the firstborn from the dead. Um, He's even greater than the promise could be conceived by David. He's not just the firstborn. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. He's the king. He's the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the faithful witness to God's promise. The faithful witness that all of God's covenant promises are true. Um, And then we have that wonderful blessing ascribing glory to God who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Um, And then that great reminder that the God who is first as creator will be last as consummator of history and will visibly display his glory before the whole world in judgment. Right? Um, That that, that statement of power in verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, right? Is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. Right? He's on his way in glory. He was first in creation. He will be last in consummation, bringing everything to perfection, saving those for whom his son was pierced and coming in judgment against those who are against him. Um, and those who, who pierced him will wail on account of him. Um, that, that's the twofold reality of the judge who's coming, right? The, it's, good, it's good news that he's coming for his people, um, for those who are of heaven. But for those who are of earth, it's, a bad, it's bad news. Um, and we'll be reminded of that as it goes on. That's all true in the midst of what's going on in the ministry of John. That blessing is true. For the churches, a blessing is coming from their, from their pastor. It's all true. That's who God is. But it's coming to tiny, scattered, persecuted churches in the midst of their tribulation, in the midst of their patient endurance, the, reminding them that they're part of the kingdom, but they're also part of the suffering. And so John is in this circumstance, right? Suffering, patiently enduring. Um, and something happens to him on the Lord's Day, um, on Sunday, right? The, the Christian Sabbath. John is in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Uh, maybe not even having anyone to worship with on the Lord's Day. Um, the last of the apostles in all likelihood at this point. Um, and something glorious happens. The scene shifts from the earthly situation that John and the churches are experiencing to the heavenly situation. We move from John's earthly ministry and the suffering and tribulation to Jesus' heavenly ministry. Um, And it it takes a sort of sudden move um, for us after he says these things, right? I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Um, He turns, and what does he see? He sees heaven. Right? He's now looking into the Holy of Holies, where the, seven lamp st- the sevenfold lampstand stood, right? Um, we, we call it a menorah. That's usually what we think of when we think of the lampstand and the seven lamps that are on the menorah, right? Um, we, we can kind of think of that. Well, there was only, you know, the, we think of the Hanukkah one that has extra lamps. So there was only one that had seven, that was in the temple. Um, you couldn't have a seven-fold lampstand anywhere else. That was, not, that was not right because only that was in the, in the heavens. So a seven-lampstand, that's a very clear picture of holy of holies, right? The, the holy part of the temple. You're looking into the temple. You're looking into heaven. That's particularly clear when you see Jesus, right? You don't only see the, the holy place. You see the holy priest in the holy place. He's moved. Right? The scene has completely shifted. We're no longer on this little rocky island in the middle of nowhere, running from the law that wants to persecute you on account of Christ. Now suddenly you're looking into heaven uh, where you see the lamps and the lampstands and you see the one who is in glory. Um, remember we said that details are important in this book? Um, how far away is heaven from John? Think about how that's described. I hear a voice behind me, he says. Sounded like a trumpet, right? So imagine you're sitting there and all of a sudden a trumpet blasts from behind you. It's going to make you startle, right? Um, I did that to my nephew earlier this week. He's a little guy, and he was walking past the car, and I hit the alarm button to honk, you know, to lock the doors, and it honked the horn, and it made him jump because um, he's right by the horn, <laughs> little guy, right? So, I, sorry, Uncle William's slipping. So, sorry, he caught me slipping. Sorry, um, but you know, you, you jump when that kind of thing happens, and that probably happened to John, all alone on the rocky island. If some, suddenly you hear this voice like a trumpet behind you, um, and he does what the natural thing is. Right, you hear the loud voice behind you, what do you do? You turn around to see where the loud voice is. Um, how does that teach us to think of heaven? Is it this far off remote place? No, John can turn around and see it right over his shoulder. Isn't that a glorious thing to think? That glory is close, that close? that it can be presented as just a matter of over your shoulder. You, you turn around and it's that near. Um, you, see, you see how the details can be really important for us? Um, my dad wrote, the closeness of heaven is vital to the meaning of the revelation. In this book, heaven is not conceived as a distant country or an escape from trouble or as a reward at the end of life. In this book, heaven is a near present reality. Earth is the reality we see, but heaven is the reality over our shoulder that we do not see. We might think of John's conception of heaven as similar to the way we see the relationship between our bodies as we see them and our bodies as shown in an x-ray. 
An x-ray is no less true for showing us what we cannot ordinarily see. Heaven heaven like an x-ray shows us the invisible structure that stands behind the reality we see. The vision of heaven gives an understanding of the meaning of a reality at a much deeper level than is usually available. John and the churches are suffering, which is the earthly reality, the skin of life. But we also need to take the x-ray seriously. Jesus is in heaven, full of power, wisdom, and love for his people. Jesus is really in charge of all things, and he knows what he is doing, even when the righteous suffer. As we live for Jesus on earth, he is close in heaven, taking care of the churches. Um, that's a wonderful way to think of heaven, right? It's not away or far away from us. It's, it's near. We don't see it, but it's close. And it's governing all that's unseen behind us. Um, that's a glorious reality to think about. And of course, John just doesn't see heaven. He sees Jesus. He sees a, a person that can't be anyone but Jesus, right? It doesn't say specifically that he turns and sees Jesus. Um, we're just told about the picture he sees. Um, I thought about this in light of what we had talked about on Sunday about idolatry. You know, that the reason you don't make pictures of God is because you can't adequately capture his deity. Pictures are inadequate to his deity um, and pictures are unworthy of his majesty. Um, Imagine trying to paint a picture that actually captures what John sees on this occasion. Right? You couldn't do it. And if you tried, you would rob it of its worth and its dignity. Right? Um, he sees something that's impressive. Um, that, and this glorious picture that he sees is almost entirely symbolic. Right? This is not what Jesus looked like to John on earth. Remember, John knew Jesus. He knew the real Jesus. He didn't have to make a picture. He knew what he looked like. He, he was well acquainted with Jesus, and this is not the picture he sees. And here, too, it's a reminder, is Jesus physically changed? Well, no, that's not the point here. The point is to speak about him symbolically, to drive home who Jesus, who Jesus is in glory. Um, the good news is he still looks like a son of man. Right? He still looks like a human being. It's still Jesus, but he's now wearing a golden sash. That shows that he's a king. Um, His hair is white. That suggests Daniel's description of the divine ancient of days in Daniel 7-9. That's how he was described there, the ancient of days. Um, Hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, There's not a picture of humanity, but of divinity. Uh, That's a powerful image of God, of eyes that see everything, that bore through everything. Um, His feet are feet of bronze. Uh, What does that mean? They're they're strength, they're strong. Uh, They're able to, to destroy. That's the symbol of strength there. You know, if we want to talk about weakness, sometimes we say, well, you know, I'm a man, I have clay, feet of clay, right? That's, that's your way of saying, I'm a weak person. This is not feet of clay. These are feet of bronze. This is a strong person. Um, and his face is like sun shining in full strength. 
right? His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a fire, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now again, this has to be symbolic, right? Because if you look at him and his face is shining like the full strength of the sun, you wouldn't be able to see anything else, right? John is just trying to say, this is, this is what I saw, and, and this is the limits I have to describe it. Um, I can only describe it in those, those kinds of terms. Um, his right hand holds seven stars. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Um, he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is how Jesus is presented. A prophet, a priest, a king. He's a priest because he's standing in the temple. He's a king because he's got the, the golden sash. He's the, the judge and the prophet because of the word that comes out of his mouth. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I always thought, why does Jesus have a sword in his mouth? That doesn't make sense to me. What, what, what's the picture there? Well, the picture there is here, here is one who needs no weapon but his voice. He's a king that doesn't need to come with a sword in his hand because his mouth, his voice is all the weapon that he needs. Um, and it cuts whichever way he speaks. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts, it cuts any way it goes. Um, this is a, an amazing picture of Jesus. Um, and he's presented as the one who's in charge. Right? This, this is someone who no one could stand against. Right? This is someone you don't want to tangle with, that you don't have any hope of overcoming. He's not to be trifled with. Um, and this is important because it's a very clear picture that Jesus is in charge, right? There, there's, no, there's no messing around with him. He's holding the seven, seven stars in his hand, right? He's, he's very powerful. Um, and John sees him and John is afraid, right? Just to see him, to hear him, to know him is to be afraid, uh, verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Um, now again, this has to be all symbolic, because he has seven stars in his hand, but now he can put his right hand on John. So that's intentional. That There's the hand of power now resting on the, his servant and saying, don't be afraid. You see how awesome that interplay is with all those details of who this is and the power that he has, and John reacts the way any of us would react in that similar situation, to hear a voice speak and to turn around and to see him. Um, and the glory of the fact that what he says to him is, fear not. You don't need to be afraid. And why is that so glorious? Because if you don't need to be afraid of him, there's nothing else you need to be afraid of. When God says don't be afraid, there's nothing to be afraid of. Right? When the one who looks like that and who can do what he can do can be sitting there with stars in his hands and a sharp sword coming out of his mouth says to you, don't be afraid. What else is going to make you afraid? 
right? When that one is putting his hand on you and saying, don't be afraid, right? That's, that's where everything is put in its perspective. And John can clearly understand who he's seeing. We shouldn't rush past any words in the Bible, but certainly not these words, don't be afraid. Fear not. Um, and the one who's telling him not to be afraid is the one who is the first and the last. Um, who was when there was nothing and made everything. And who will be there when everything comes to its appointed end and is made perfect. Um, John has nothing to fear from him and neither do any of his people. Um, it's setting us on that right footing. He's not a threat to the people that follow him. There's nothing to fear. There's only reason to hope. Because if we don't need to be afraid of him, there's nothing else we need to be afraid of in the world. Um, it's a glory, it's glorious good news. He's in a, he has authority over all. He controls everything. He is in charge of all, of life and of death and all of history. We're getting a clarification of what was said earlier. It's being driven home to us. That here is the one who was dead, but now he's alive forevermore. The one who was buried and now stands with the keys of death and Hades in his hand. He was subject to death in this world. He is not subject to it anymore. Um, he subjected himself, but was never subject to it, and now is king over it, and holds those keys in his hands. Um, this is going to be an important reminder to us as we go forward in this book, um, that Jesus is who he is, even when we're suffering. Um, that that word that came to John is the word that still comes to the church. That Jesus puts his hand on us and says, don't be afraid. I was there before anything was. And everything came into being because of what I commanded. And I'm governing all things until the end. Um, and the end is coming. And the time is near. Right? What, what does the church in suffering need to hear? You don't need to suffer much longer. Right? Surely you can hold on for a little while longer. That, that's going to be the message of Revelation. Your suffering, the suffering is real. Nothing is being diminished when we talk about the suffering of the church. Um, in no way is it being portrayed as not real suffering or it's all in your head, or it's a matter of your state of mind. It's a real suffering that the church is going through. But when the messages of Revelation be, the suffering is real, the rule of Christ is realer, and it's near, and it's coming. And surely you can hold out just a little bit longer. Um, there are going to be you know, time frames in the book that are sort of strange at times, but what it amounts to is you can hold on just a little bit longer, can't you? It's almost over. It's almost over. And the one who's in control of all things and is coming is saying, and until it's over, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, that, that's the important introduction. All of this is introductory to what happens with the churches going forward. As the letters come to the churches, they need to come with this perspective of who Christ still is 
even in the midst of their suffering. Who the God is who promises grace and peace, even in the midst of suffering. Um, And that's what begins this important message that will come through all these various letters. How does the church suffer in this world? Because each of these churches suffers in a different way. Suffers for a different reason. Needs a different kind of medicine uh, for remaining faithful. But it's all going to be the same message continuing to come um, in these seven cycles. So um, that's probably enough for one night. Um, Hopefully it's enough to whet our appetites for more (laughs) of this uh, to think about our Lord and what he's doing in the church. So um, just remember, I think, that really glorious thing that heaven is not far away. Um, heaven is just over our shoulders, still ruling and reigning over all. So are there any questions? Feel free to ask, ask any questions you want about Revelation. I might say, well, we'll get there later, but um, particularly as we start off on this footing, um, are there any any questions about the book of the Revelation. Yeah. Yeah, what, what is he trying to do? Is he putting it in these terms or is he just describing what he's seen? I mean, I think the, the beginning of the book is very clear, right? God gave this revelation to Christ. He gave it to an angel to give to John and John bore witness to all he saw. Um, and I think John is recording exactly what he saw. Um, and he puts it in ways that are understandable um, to, to us and to the people of the time. Um, but it also is going to mean that at times God is speaking that way because that's as, as well as a human mind can really understand some of these divine things. Um, and so, you know, some people have said John is seeing things that he doesn't understand and recording it as best as he can. So, you know, people have made, you know, he's seeing Huey helicopters, but he doesn't really know what a Huey helicopter is. So he's really describing he just says, you know, a locust with a sting in its tail because that's the best he can do. I don't think that's what's happening. I think he's describing it as he sees it. Um, but, you know, Calvin said when God speaks to us, he comes down and speaks baby talk to us. He lisps to us in a way that we can understand. Um, and so I think John is really seeing these things and these heavenly glories are being put in ways that he can understand. Um, if you hear the voice of the glorified Christ, it's going to sound to you like the roar of many waters. Um, so I think that's how he's hearing it. That's how he writes it. Um, but we know that it's even more glorious than just the sound of roaring water. Um, but that's the picture he sees, and that's what God gives to us because that image is so vivid to us. Like if you've ever been standing by roaring water, you know exactly what that is, you know, that, that thunder. And if you, if you stand next to that kind of water for a long time and then you walk away from it, you still kind of hear it ringing in your ears and it, it impresses on you just what it's like to hear roaring water or a voice like a trumpet just blasting. You know, you understand that imagery. And so I think Jesus gives the revelation to John in a way that he can understand and relate to us, even though we, we recognize that the symbol doesn't entirely capture the magnitude of the reality. Um, yeah, Chris first, and then... Not just a, uh, as you would seem to cast out uh, with verse 9 that this is future 
Yeah, that does, yeah, saying that he's a partner in the tribulation does sort of make it sound like there's not another tribulation to come. And that's why, you know, I don't, my goal in this is not for us to like pin the tail on the dispensationalists, you know, or to pillory the dispensationalists. But we do have to be reminded at times, no matter how you take these things, you can't, at some point you can't be entirely literal. Otherwise you have to have seven spirits, um, and even the people that try to take things literally still end up sim- making some things symbols. You know, so you have to take everything literally, but the seven churches are really the seven ages of the church. Um, and so you, you end up moving things into the symbolic realm either way. Um, and what we always have to remember is, if something is given to you to be symbolic, um, to not take it as being symbolic is not to be reading it literally. Right. Um, if I take a novel that's fiction and I and I say, boy, I really like to meet this Jack Reacher. He seems like a really neat guy. It's like, well, Jack Reacher doesn't exist. He's a fictional character. You know, to me to read it literally would be to me to read it wrong. Um, and so when God gives us something that's symbolic and you read it as symbolic, you're actually reading it literally the way it was meant to be read. And so we have to keep that in mind. But yeah, you're right. It does raise the question if John is a partner in the tribulation and it's happening now for him, and it's happening for the church now, does that have anything to do with what we read about tribulation later? And I think it does. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yes, sir? I was just going to say, following up on Angela's question, and uh, what you were saying, I was kind of struck that some of those images there, uh, you, you know, rightly pointed out that those are fulfillment of Old Testament Yeah, I think that's true too. Yeah, that Revelation, as we go on, we're going to see tons of Old Testament imagery brought into and sometimes combined. Like we'll see, this is all from this part of Ezekiel and this is all from this part of Daniel. And it's all coming together in this one prophecy. Um, and, and it finds its fulfillment in Christ. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But yeah, if you're asking who's the Ancient of Days and you read this and don't make the connection to Christ, then you probably need to go back to the whiteboard. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, so what we're gonna what we're gonna hopefully do going forward is look at this first cycle of seven that we find that has its theme as the church um, in its suffering must remain faithful. And so, if you want to start reading, we're probably not going to be able. I don't know if we'll be able to go through all seven churches next time. That might be biting off more than we can chew. But certainly, if you want to read ahead. Um, reading the next chapter or two would be good uh, to read about the seven churches and to begin to think about um, those messages, the different ways that they're suffering, the different reasons they're suffering, the different ways they're called to be faithful um, as messages for the whole church. So we can think about that more next time. Okay? Any other questions, final thoughts? No one wants to know who or what 666 is? All right, that was your chance. Um, (laughs) No, hopefully we'll, we'll talk about some of those things when we get there. Let's, uh, let's close our time in prayer. Father, how thankful we are to be reminded that in the midst of our tribulation and our attempts to endure with more or less patience at times, we pray that you would help to keep reminding us that we are members of the kingdom now, that Christ is triumphant and reigning at your right hand, that you are the one who was and is and is coming 
uh, that the sevenfold spirit of power is before your throne, bringing to perfection all of your work, that we are relying on Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. We thank you that heaven is just over our shoulder, uh, working behind what we can see, directing things for the good of your people and ultimately for the glory of your name. Uh, How we desire to come to the end of this time, whatever time you give us, having endured patiently, um, knowing that the time is near, help us to be faithful. Help us as we go forward in this word to be blessed by it, uh, to do what it commands us to do and to keep before our minds always that the time is near. And so we do pray that the Lord Jesus would come quickly, um, but that as he waits and as we join the church in previous generations that were called to be patient and endure in the midst of tribulation, that we would be found to be patient and faithful. Give us help to do that by your spirit. Help us to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the first and the last, who was dead and is alive forevermore and holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand. Hear us, for we pray in his name. Amen. All right, thank you for coming.